Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Value Guys Stock Talk Show with the Value Guys. I'm Val Hughes, a 40-year Wall Street analyst that has had to take on a secret identity and go underground in order to provide a handful of stock ideas here on the show each week. You've seen our faces on TV. You've seen us quoted in the news, but our bosses would never allow our unfiltered views on the air, so we've disguised our voices, and they'll never know. This week... It's September 14th, 2020. I think it's the 314th episode. We've got, I think, the meat of the show is three pretty medium stock ideas this week. We also have a stock market update, some Wall Street news. We're going to revisit some old names we've talked about. And then I ran kind of an interesting screen this week. But before we get to that, some important caveats. First... This show is for entertainment purposes only. That's not a guarantee. Secondly, Mo and I are professional money managers and analysts during the week. We do a lot of careful analysis. We do particularly 10-year models. We talk to management teams, a lot of careful analysis. We've been careful to do absolutely none of that here on the show. Third, we do not have your interests in mind. Our lawyers remind us to tell you we only have our own greedy interests in mind. And then fourth... Um, and I can't speak for Mo mainly because he's not here, but I've been heavily drinking. See all our caveats, disclosures, pictures our moms took at www.thevalueguys.com. Also see all our shows going back to 2006 on iTunes, and we've got our more recent stuff on Spotify. I've just been a little bit lazy in putting all that up on Spotify. Also, um, we have a show called The Value Guys Stock Clips, where if you enter a dollar sign and a ticker symbol, um, there's a, you know, pretty tiny chance, but there's a chance that you might come up with the specific clip where Mo and I were chatting about that name. We've tried to be a little more diligent about that. It's a separate a podcast on iTunes called Stock Clips, so check that out as well. Okay, well, you know, I'm, I uh, have to apologize, first of all. Mo is still away. You know, he's qualified for a biking team. He's nationally ranked, so that's pretty cool. But that just leaves me to my own devices. It's been the holidays, blah, blah, blah. So I apologize. I've missed a week here. In any case, we did miss a week um, just from vacationing and all that. So, what do we have this week? Three medium ideas. I think I might as well just tell you what they are. These might also be able to be, um, as I said, dollar sign, ticker, you could look for it. The first one is PSA, public storage. The second, Western Union. And the third, I haven't really decided. These are coming off kind of an interesting screen related to um, hopefully a little bit of momentum in that it's stocks that the charts appear to be moving into a good place, according to my technical friends. And meantime, I happen to like the valuation, so we're going to do that. And if you're just here for that, either check out those stock clips or skip ahead, you know, fast forward. Okay, what do we have up first? Well, stock market update. Is this a stock market show? Yes, it is. Why? How can I show you that? Well, we're about to tell you about the stock market. So I just go to Bloomberg. There's a lot of different tools. Bloomberg 
Com. I might be a subscriber, but I think you can get this for free. And you just go to their uh, page called Stocks, which is nice. The Dow Jones Industrial Average today, so what, this is Monday, was up a point, percent, percent point two. It was a pretty good day for stocks. Uh, the S&P 500 was up 1.27, the NASDAQ up 1.9, the NYSE up 1.25. The one-year numbers aren't quite the same for all of these. One year, so that goes one year ago, September 14, 2019, the Dow is up 2.8 over that period, 2.8%. The S&P 500 up 12.5% for the last year. Again, if you just saw that from space, you wouldn't think there was necessarily a pandemic, I have to say. And then the NASDAQ, People say, why is the NASDAQ doing so well? Because they're taking, you know, much larger share of wallet um, than they had earlier. They're up 35%. That might represent in some interesting way that just the percent increase in their share of GDP or uh, the likelihood they can raise price and everyone will sort of go along with it. Now, here's something. The NYSE Composite Index, the one year, I just said the NASDAQ is up 35.2%. The NYSE Composite Index uh, is down 1.5%. Now, I don't know how many listeners remember the big battle between the NASDAQ and the NYSE and how it was prestigious to bring your IPO to the NYSE, and it was not prestigious to bring your IPO over to the NASDAQ. Apple is really the company that kind of started changing that, and I believe their IPO was maybe in 1979 or 80. Uh, they still have their ticker from that time, AAPL. But interesting, the NASDAQ, the little, the little brother, the little guy trying to get in there, uh, up 35% one year, NYSE um, up down 1.4. I don't even know if who owns the NYSE anymore. I think... Um, I think a, a British firm does. And then the, uh, uh, I do have, again, stock market show. Might as well go deep on that, right? If I can work my computer here. Europe, Middle East. Now here's something. Okay, we've got our S&P 500 up 12. Okay, here's a bunch of big European indices. The Euro 50, one year, down 6.5. S&P up 12.5. That's a big gap. The FTSE 100. I don't know if that's just British stocks. I mean, judging from the performance, it very well could be down 18%. Again, we're up 12. Hello, America, right? And then uh, the DAX, D-A-X. I think that's Germany. Again, I'm a U.S. guy. But what have you, five plus five. Okay, you know, they're probably the strong economy in Europe, so they're up 5.8. The IBEX 35, which I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't know what that is. Let's see, okay, yeah, the Spanish exchange. All right, well, I'm glad that the value guys haven't been recommending that. That's down 24% year-to-date. So this has been a trend that's been going on a long time, like a decade, where the U.S. stock market, so here you have the S&P up 12, the NASDAQ up 35, 
the best the European, the rest of world can muster, you know, is up six in Europe. Our worst market on the, you know, at, the, at that high level is the NYSE. Who knows why it's doing so badly? We can talk about that another time. But that's our worst big one. I mean, you can look at some of the value indices. They're terrible right now as well. But minus one in Europe, you know, minus 24, that's Spain. Minus 18, that's the UK, okay? Now, over in Asia Pacific, a little better news. Again, it doesn't get any more stock markety than this, right? Over in Asia, the Nikkei 225. Again, that's got to be Japan, right? I'm a grown man. I can figure that out. Up seven, okay? Beating Germany. Topics index. So that's also, it says Tokyo. Maybe that's just Tokyo companies. I have no idea. You can, this is a free site. Up 2.5. Hong Kong, minus 10, not a shock. The CSI 300, uh, that's a Shanghai index. Ouch, down 11. Oops, nope, sorry. Yeah, down 11.5. And then the MSCI Asia Pacific, according to this thing, it's got to be sort of non-China, Asia-Pacific, and that one is, um, you know, not doing too bad, up eight. So what's the lesson here? Well, the U.S. stock market, it's year-to-date, but it's also been for a decade, is beating all the other markets. And I think we've talked about this on the show before, but I have to believe, because we just are guessing, everyone's guessing as to what's happening um, in terms of these things, but my belief is, and I don't know, Mo might disagree if he were here, but just that the the growth rate in the U.S. probably is a little better because we have better population growth. That's from immigration. That's been there a long time. That's winded our back. And then on top of that, over the last decade, I think we've become a safer place, particularly when Europeans have to start worrying about Russian gas and Russian military and such, and you don't have to worry so much about that in the U.S. Uh, also, energy independence, I think, has helped a lot. So if you're a billionaire somewhere and you need a little bit of cash around, you want to have liquidity to your money and certainty around it, I think the U.S. is starting to look pretty good. And also, I believe, and I'm not a lawyer, but some of my lawyer friends tell me that uh, the laws in Nevada have gotten uh, really much more secretive than laws in uh, in even other other countries. Certainly, Switzerland has become a partner uh, with the uh, IRS in a lot of things. And so, anyway, um, so the differential in performance is partly better growth, but partly better safety, and that creates a, a widening gap in terms of the required risk premium to own other places rather than the U.S. Uh, so that's our stock market update. Okay, what else do we have? Some Wall Street news. Okay, what's going on? Well, the big news I saw last week, we have this you know argument going on in the shop all the time about Tesla, and uh, it's just interesting. You know, we've talked about it many times. From 30,000 feet, I think you got to figure out how big the car market is in the world and what percentage they're going to get of that and then what's their profit margin for example if apple's your model 
they don't necessarily have a very large piece of the phone business. I don't know what it is offhand, but it's very expensive phones. They might only have 15 or 20% of total phones, maybe less, but they make 90% of the money on the phones in that business because it's a premium product. Everybody pays up. They've got their walled garden, their ecosystem. Um, so in the auto business, you know, what percentage of auto sales will they have in terms of units? And then what percentage of profits will they have? At the moment, the valuation is either one of two things. And we know one of three, we, two are left, one of which was that there was a belief they were going to get in the S&P 500. Okay. I mean, I see that as a, you know, a long-time analyst, and I'm like, really? I mean, they, they have such a tiny fraction of actually making anything, and they have a giant ability to persuade the market uh, that the probabilities of them one day earning a lot of money are, you know, reasonably high. They don't have to be that high. I mean, this is a case where you might have the estimate that Tesla's going to fail. You might think there's a 70% chance they fail. But, so your your best guess would be they will fail. But at the same time, if they manage to hit that 30%, and they manage to own 80% of the profits due to their image and their technology and, you know, their poster child for uh, some kind of crazy Professor Cool that gives you some multiple points, then, you know, if they end up like Apple in the valuation department and the profits department, then maybe the valuation makes sense. You can work that all through. You know, we do decision trees in the shop. We put probabilities on different outcomes. When you have things like this that could turn out any which way, you just have to do a big decision tree. You might have five nodes to it and just work it out. Go through. This is 15% chance. You can eyeball it and you're going to be in a much better place than just going, who knows, This could ha anything could happen. Well, no, not anything could happen. There's five things that could happen. And more than that, and who knows, you know, maybe seven, you know, I don't know. But the reason I'm talking about this at all is that it was news a couple of days ago, which tells you when I had actually intended to do the show, uh, that the that Tesla was left out of the S&P 500. And um, I just want to say, I'm kind of happy about that. A bunch came out of the stock. Of course, it's still up a lot. You still have to do the math I just talked about on whether they, you know, are really a, any kind of reasonable value. Or you can back out what the likelihood is of success by uh, what they're already valued at. But I'm happy they're not in because I kind of think the S&P 500, you, you should make stuff. You should be helping, you know, GDP in America. And, you know, GDP is, you can, you know, maybe look at sales, uh, but not market cap. Um, and so I think that um, I was happy. I also, as a result of, uh, I really normally do as little work as possible. This Tesla story, I dug in a little bit on just what was happening. And I'm happy to say that the S&P committee, there's a group in there. You know, the Russell indices are just rules-based. You know, there's rules. They follow them. Oh, Johnny, here's the stocks that are in the Russell 1000 now. That's No one decides. But at the S&P company, 
which is, uh, you know, a subsidiary now of a bigger company and et cetera. But there's a group that decides. That's one reason, you know, they uh, they don't perform like other indices in that they've got people in there kind of figuring out which names to put in there. And, of course, it's market cap weighted. That's really the more likely one. But in this case, that nice committee of people who have earned my respect as a result of this, um, not that they didn't have it already, they did, but they don't, they didn't include it, I think, because they didn't, they don't make anything. So that's, uh, and I don't think you should get in the S&P 500 on the probability that one day you'll be making stuff. I also learned that um, quite a bit of their cash flows and profits come from selling regulatory credits. That sounds gimmicky. Um, and so what? If you're uh, a diesel engine company, you can buy stuff from Tesla because they have electric motors that help you feel better about your dirty diesel engines. I'm not sure. Again, I did no work on that part. But something was going on, and um, admittedly, that could have played a role in why the S&P committee might, you know, choose to not include that. So that's my, uh, that's one piece of Wall Street news. And then the other one was um, just, you know, one of the reasons the market was doing well today was just that people are getting excited about deals getting done, which... Again, it gives people a little more confidence if these, you know, big, smart CEOs know to do something, then, hey, maybe things are okay. Well, yeah, could be. But on the other hand, if your P.E. is higher than a different guy's P.E., you can buy them with stock. They'll put it in the paper with the dollar value. They, you don't ever say, hey, this acquisition happened for... 2.2, you know, billion share. They just they put the dollar value. So that's nice. And your earnings rise as a function of capturing that lower value. And again, you hear me talk on the show about, you know, cash flow yields and the inverse, E over P. So if your PE is 20, that means in effect, you've got a 5% yield. You want to buy someone that's PE is 10 they got a 10% yield, okay? So you can issue a bunch of stock that the investors are willing to take a 5% yield on. So let's say this company costs a million dollars. You can issue shares in your company that are worth a million dollars, and as soon as you bring them in, their earnings are worth twice as much, and quite a bit of the acquisition just paid for itself by the increase in value. Um, you know, just imagine if Tesla, your company's earning a dollar and you're worth 10 times earnings, that's $10. But if Tesla buys you, now it's a dollar of Tesla earnings and it's worth a billion dollars or whatever. I might be exaggerating that. Okay, so um, there's a lot of excitement around these acquisitions. And I just want to point to... So I looked through that, you know, all these acquisitions. They, they seem just uh, pr pretty normal. What's happening here? You've got uh, NVIDIA buying ARM, two chip companies. You know, there's a, there's a lot of chip companies, so there's always been a consolidation need there. Oracle bought TikTok. 
Okay, well, you always wondered what Oracle was going to do for their next thing. I think they own Java, if I'm not mistaken, a few other things. So I'm glad they got it. I'd like to hear more about Oracle. But the one that struck me, and it really has nothing to do about the acquisition itself, but there's a big deal going on with DuPont and a breakup of DuPont. You know, DuPont is one of our oldest companies in America, and that's because Mr. DuPont, he sold gunpowder, probably to both sides, I'm going to guess, but that led to a giant chemical business. Fast forward, you know, etc., giant chemical business. And it got so big and confusing, and this is fascinating because DuPont was one of the earliest companies I'd ever look at, but it, there's a giant breakup going on. It's been going on for a year. It's so complicated. It's turning into three companies, and then three of those, they're buying each other, or different things are flying all over the place, divisions. Again, if I were a chemical analyst, I, you know, I might dig into this a little bit more. And I have looked at it, and I think once somebody misses earnings and the stocks go down, I'll come back maybe and take a look at it. But what I just found was that... Um, there's a merger going on between one of the divisions of DuPont, which is their DuPont Nutrition and Biosciences business. It's something we even knew was in DuPont. But it's one of those companies that's helping create foods. And, um, and, and I think historically, you know, some of that was to persuade our brains to keep buying things that are bad for us. But in the future, I believe there will be an opportunity to turn foods into more, uh, you know, delivery systems of good, healthful ingredients instead of having to take it later as medicine. Why don't we take it in advance in our food? You know, sort of like uh, what they did uh, with fluoride in the water. How about in vitamin D and milk? There's just, there could be a lot of things down this rabbit hole. And so... Um, what I noticed is this company, I just talked about, is buying IFF. Well, IFF is International Flavors and Fragrances. Now, I visited this company, I mean, literally 30 years ago. I was uh, covering them. We were looking to buy them. And they had a, this old office on 57th Street. It literally looked like you were going into a time machine into the 50s. It was all this Swedish wood I mean, almost if you turn on Bewitched and look at Darren's office, it uh, it looked like that. And and these guys create uh, flavors and fragrances for all the top brands. I mean, they have competitors, but you know, if you can picture the smell of a McDonald's French fry, it's them. That's their invention, and which is one of the you know few foods you can recognize was just recently in an elevator. It's amazing technology. And by marrying up these two companies, IFF, um, and, and they're roughly equal sized. They're doing billions and billions. I think together that's going to be an $11 billion company. Uh, they're merging everything together. As I just said, they're all using stock. There's no money changing hands. It's a $26 billion deal. Uh, 45 billion enterprise value. I mean, it's enormous. It's enormous. But both of these companies have a lot of secret sauce. So for those of you that are just sleuths of, hey, what's happening? Where's there an opportunity? This is too big for me, actually, in the shop to own. 
but it just caught my eye because these are really two big cool companies and they're merging and that's my uh that's my wall street news uh okay let's see i'm just going to check make sure this thing is still going let's take a break why don't we just take a break right now that way it's halfway i know we're always doing break a little late in the show so we will be back with um, a little talk about some past names. I got a couple past names I picked out here to talk about, little silly things. And then the meat of the show, three names coming off a screen that uh, I just decided to do last minute. So we will be back right after this. <laughs> Okay, we're back, everybody. One of the things we like to do is, you know, have some thoughts that, you know, people at home can use. Again, anyone can cook. Anyone can do this. Trust me. And so I think that, you know, going and uh, running a screen, you mix it up. Don't get caught with one screen. You go through. That's kind of the meat of the show. And we've been doing this a long time. And evidently, when a listener you know, all the XML code is there, and we just figured out how to bring this stuff in. We have every show, every ticker, you can see how they've done, etc. Um, and so some listeners have said, you know, you really have to talk about some past ideas. And we're developing uh, a little technology to go, you know, visit stocks from, you know, 10 years ago and stuff would be fun. But right now, again, I'm doing a little less work than normal. Uh, just a couple names we talked about recently are in the news, um, and so I just wanted to bring them up, and not take a lot of time, because again, what time is it? It's getting late. I'm sure all of you have somewhere to go. I appreciate you listening at all here. Um, okay, first up, we've, you know, Kodak has been in the news. It was hysterical. You know, Mo brought it up a few, like a couple months ago, came on a momentum screen, and he liked that. I looked liked it, and, um, they have really shrunk down from their old days. They sold most of their IP and their patent portfolio, I believe, to Google, particularly in that Motorola division that now, of course, Motorola bought by Google. But there's still a bunch of stuff in there earning money. I mean, I don't know what it all is. Uh, it's related to chemicals, and who knows? I think they have a business that has to do with identification badges, and, you know, they went all... It's easy for all of us to take a cell phone picture now. We don't need a... Uh, you know, development lab, but there's still a business in secure photos and ID for, you know, security, and I think they might be involved in that, um, but we did take a bit of a deep dive on that a few weeks ago. Why are they in the news? Well, you know, at the core, we like small cap value, and one of the great small cap value companies is Southeastern Asset Management, and a somewhat legendary guy named Mason Hawkins, and I don't know if he's still involved. I didn't get look that closely. But I saw that Southeastern Asset had taken a very meaningful position in Kodak. So, 
you know, um, the value guys talked about it. I think it was at 14 on the way either up or down from the 40s. Who knows? It really spiked just for a couple of days on the notion that Kodak was somehow going to start inventing uh, drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals, to, I think, maybe help us with COVID. I'm not... I don't. I didn't understand where that was coming from, so I, I don't know how much stock I put into that. I don't remember Kodak being a pharmaceutical-related company, but it could be that some of their patents relate to technologies that are in there. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not counting on that. You know, if you go look at their uh, 10K, they actually have cash coming in from a whole bunch of things that some of which seem like annuities. And even right now, it's seven times EBITDA, something like that, which I look at, you know, 14% cash on cash, and evidently so does Southeastern Asset. So the fact that they're taking a look at it, I think, is, uh, you know, people uh, that are pretty smart, that, that, that are, uh, they've got a big position. So that makes me even, you know, hey, maybe... Maybe us doing as little work as possible. I'm quite sure they did as much work as possible over there. That's their motto. So I take a look at Kodak. Also, another one, this one we talked about, I think Mo brought it up, but we also had a listener um, write in about it, which is, is Chewy, and uh, C-H-W-Y, I think is the ticker there. And they just put up some earnings that were pretty good. Uh, and this is a stock that we... I believe talked about, and uh, it was around forty-five bucks a share, and now it's uh, quite a bit higher than that. I don't know. Let's see, sixty bucks. So, you know, it's um, it seems that people are really during these times they're really adding pets to their lives. You know, they're very nice companions. There was already a trend. Um, over the last decade even, that had a label called Humanization of Pets. And uh, in the shop, we've owned veterinarians, we've owned, uh, you know, uh, food uh, companies, we, we've owned pets, P-E-T-S. It's a it's an online uh, medicine and pet food store. And Chewy is, is like that, so we're fans of that, and they're getting some good news. And we, again, we had a listener write in about that. So... Um, I don't want to get too detailed, but Chewy going up. How about that? All right. Let's get to the meat of the show. How much time? I really don't want to keep everyone longer than we really need to here. Um, and, of course, you could fast forward to this. Okay. 32 minutes left or into it. All right. So this week, I just, I, you know, I was looking at my screens, and I have a few go-tos, but I don't want to get hung up on one screen. Long-time listeners know you got to mix it up. So I looked down pretty deep into my toolkit here. It's a tricky time, let's face it. I feel like we're on a long boat across the Pacific Ocean. Um, things are unfolding, but how are habits changing? How many people are coming back to the office? How many are not? I'm actually in my office today, seriously. And... Um, and it's, uh, you know, we, we have a firm that, you know, has 50 people here. And uh, it was me, me. And then, uh, frankly, the chairman also walked by. I like seeing that. But, you know, I don't know how many people are going to be coming to work. Not because they can't, but do they want to? So it's a tricky time to be investing. We've long had a view of needs, not wants. 
And it's interesting, we didn't own in the office space, it doesn't exactly seem like a need where in my industry we could work remotely the last literally 25 years. So uh, we avoided that. And and as a result, um, you know, there doesn't seem like there's a lot of opportunity that would be different from the opportunity that was here six months ago. Um, you know, we're pre-COVID. As I just said, some of these big indices, the S&P is up 12. You know, part of that can just be... A, uh, determined by the decline in interest rates. So, um, so here was my screen. Just, it was something that um, was looking for a little momentum. How do you avoid a value trap? Um, you know, there's this happy medium where quants and fundamental analysts can meet, and it's the spot where fundamental analysts, particularly value investors, care about value traps and avoiding them. So, you know, Eugene Fama, a hero of academic valuation students, he found that momentum was a factor that worked. And that took a while for some of your old-time price-to-book guys to, uh, you know, to get on board with. It. And, but, you know, it makes sense because if it's supply-demand based in the price, if a little more people, you know, a few more people start learning something that makes them buy it, demand starts tilting. There's information in price. There's absolutely no question about that. So, I ran a screen here for you uh, math people. It's really arithmetic. I don't want to overstate it. Here was the first cut. I want to see a bunch of stocks where the 50-day moving average is greater than 98% of the 200-day moving average. So, if you can picture the 50-day moving average, I just want those stocks where the 200 is just below that. So, the five, the 50 and the 200, the, or I'm sorry, the 50 is just below. It's within 2% of the 200 by that screen, or lower. Okay, 300 out of thousands of companies, 19,000. Um, and, uh, and I'm sorry, it also needs to be um, in an index. So we have that criteria as well. Um, and then I come with, it has to be, the 50-day has to be less than the 200-day, those two. And I get 32 names. And the idea is, is that it's, it's names where the 50-day is about to move through the 200-day, which your momentum team would say, that's looking good. How do I know that? I asked a bunch of momentum guys. And I didn't ask them recently, though. I've known this for a while. Um, and when you talk to quant firms, even, some of their biggest clients are, frankly, value investors that don't want to get caught in value traps. How do you avoid a value trap? You look at all the factors that predict value traps. One of them is bad momentum. So the opposite is good momentum. So these are all names that, from a, from a uh, sort of quantish technical point of view, could be interesting only because they appear to be about to break their... Uh, the 50 days about to break through the 200. I only care about that for one reason. 
I don't want a value trap. It could be that, you know, the fact that the technicals, um, I guess I'm one of those guys that took a while to embrace, although I did many years ago after 08, 09. Uh, but it's, uh, it's an interesting screen to give you that potential list of, um, of companies that might look interesting but aren't value traps. So once I have that, I simply pull up a comp sheet. And what am I looking for? Well, once I have my momentum bringing me these names, I have no interest in momentum now. So I just did a sort on return on capital. You know, we're in an unusual period. Return on capital often is a proxy for growth. If you can imagine, if you don't reinvest it, your growth in capital uh, your, is your return on your capital. And so um, there's a lot of great companies in here. HP is at the top. Uh, NRG Energy is at the top, actually, uh, but they're a bit levered. Some of these are a bit levered. Again, I don't like uh, too much leverage here. So you got NRG, HP. Lockheed Martin comes out near the top, but, you know, I've talked about some things there recently. I do think defense is interesting. Philip Morris, you know, cigarettes are an addictive drug. They have great numbers, return on assets and all that. They have a lot of debt, but... It's historically been a very reliable cash flow. The thing I don't like about that is some of the biggest markets are, you know, in Asia with dictators that can just prohibit smoking, and uh, then your demand kind of falls off at that point. Starbucks has got a very high ROI, but, um, you know, I, I just... Uh, Something's going on there because the return on assets is 5, the return on capital is 21, and what I think could be happening there is that leases are in assets and not in capital. There have been some changes to the accounting there recently. That could be a problem. I don't know. I also think uh, Starbucks, it's hard to see how they're going to grow from here uh, in a way that's not anticipated um, or perhaps even overstated or, you know, uh, overbelieved by their you know billion customers so companies that everyone loves just people on the street typically for me I don't like it suggests they're overvalued then we have something that I actually decided I liked Western Union WU it's on this list and I've been through this list before now just so you know sometimes I haven't but today I did actually go through here earlier. The thing that um, attracts me to Western Union is, first, they have a 20% return on capital. Okay. That's pretty good. And they have a 7% return on assets, which, again, just like um, Starbucks, you know, there's that difference between the ROI and ROA, and there's something in A that's not in I. you got to figure that out. But that's a pretty respectable number. The thing I like most about Western Union, I guess, would be the combination of the fact that the enterprise value to EBITDA is uh, 7.5. So I'm going to look at the inverse of that. So it's between 7 and 8. So that's around 14% cash on cash return. Again, that's a return that represents what we would get on our money if we bought the company. That's a good benchmark. Would I accept a 14% return? Look around. Yes, I mean, why wouldn't you? So you think, well, maybe that's too good to be true. Maybe I'm not going to get that. Okay, that's why you look at the balance sheet. Western Union, debt to capital 
is uh, is one, um, which you know not super great. Debt to EBITDA 2.8, but here's the number that I I'm, I like. Fix at uh, times interest earned seven. That means their earnings could go down 85 percent, and they would still be covering that. Um, Okay, well now, here's the thing you may not know about Western Union. I mean, it's an old, old company, right? Um, But they are now caught up in international wiring of cash. So over the last decade or so, there's a name now, FinTech, for these names. And we've owned some of these for a long time. I mean, banks are a commodity. If they own real estate in a time when you don't need to, I think they just have a competitive disadvantage in having too high of cost. So companies that don't have real estate, but that can help you transact your banking, we've liked for a long time. Again, I, you could look back on past shows. I'm sure we've talked about that. And in my real life, that's been a big area of success for the portfolio over time. It's just the notion that it's a low-cost producer. You don't need you know, rosewood walls and marble floors to deliver a payment to someone or to wire something. And so, um, and, you know, in these times right now, COVID times, you've just educated all the richest people in the world because they're the oldest people oftentimes who don't want to, you know, who don't understand how you can do e-banking. They're the ones that go into the banks. Grandma has the money. And now they've all been educated on how they don't need to do that. So I have a feeling there's a lot of bank systems with big networks that suddenly realize they have a lot of excess costs. And grandma doesn't need to come to the bank. And so you can't really charge her for the bank if she's not coming into the bank. All those higher price services, etc. So Western Union, you know, they basically do one thing, which is they wire money internationally. And I think the business is, you know, in recent times, it's been shrinking a bit. Ten years ago, their annual revenues were $5 billion. They peaked at 5.5. Now they're 4.8 in 2019. And in the most recent quarters, let's see how they're doing here. I mean, they're down. It it seems pretty stable. Their EBITDA is also drifting down a little bit each year. So um, now they are buying some shares in, so that's positive. And I will say um, their market cap is larger than their enterprise value, which means that you know net they have net cash. So it's very it's you know it's in very good position from a balance sheet point of view, um, with uh, basically 39 percent of assets in cash. Now a lot of that you know they owe to the people who are wiring it. So just like a bank, um, that can be very misleading. But in terms of how they're managing and hedging, they they are net cash positive at the moment, and um, and they look cheap and they've got a great brand in a time when grandma's going to start understanding how you can do e-commerce and such. And I wouldn't be shocked if this company um, is either purchased for the brand by PayPal or one of the uh, you know very fast-growing companies that could just grab this and get grandma and 
all of her people and just tuck it into PayPal or tuck it into Green Dot or tuck it into somebody. I mean, when you see Oracle buy TikTok, you can see how somebody might buy Western Union just to get the branding and to get those clients. So, you know, I don't have to say much more than that. Again, uh, Western Union, W-U. And it's up 2% today, by the way. So, um, not that I noticed that. I did not. Okay, next up. Um, going back to my list of candidates, I basically sorted this on, you know, return on assets. And one I want to mention here, I almost didn't want to do this one. I mean, there's a lot of good names in here, by the way. A lot of really good names. Um, and I really wanted to think about doing Hershey. So I'd go look at this. This is a in your spare time, HSY, Hershey. Return on capital, 17. Return on assets, 12. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Times interest earned, 10. Now, all I'll say is that if we're moving into a health food conscious area, chocolate's not great for you. On the other hand, they have 50% of the market. So 45%, they're going to get their price. I think that there are some issues with the ownership structure of Hershey. And um, and I'm not sure. I, they may have been resolved, but there were some issues with the trust and, um, you know, whether the company could ever be bought out or not. I mean, when you start limiting whether a company can be bought out, then it's never going to achieve its true potential value because, of course, part of the valuation is truly a perceived arbitrage to the price that it could get bought out. That's how public companies work. Why do they have any price? Well, it's not a greater fool theory. It's the notion that if the gap between the share price and the true underlying value is too wide, that private investors will come in and swoop it in. So there's an implied potential arbitrage there at all times. That's how we invest in the first place. We're looking at what the return would be if we were private investors, and then we assume that at some point the market will move toward that, or if we're, for timing is lucky, move more than that, and we'll get you know better than fair returns. So what the heck? I mean, I'm already well into it, so let's just do Hershey. You know, the thing I like about it, and we could have done this on a, one of the other shows that we did about safety, I guess, is that, um, but the yield isn't quite big enough here, is that, you know, chocolate, in terms of trends that are entrenched, people have been eating chocolate for thousands of years, and every so often, uh, you know, the medical community even will tell you that it's uh, healthy for you, so that's nice. Um, in terms of the valuation, you know, it's it's high. Gotta say, I can't get away from it. But it's um, it's not so high relative to again. We've talked about this where T bills are and things like that. The enterprise value, the EBITDA, 19 times. That's a five percent cash on cash return. The growth rate, you know, is not that high. Now you have heard heard me say that the return on capital is a proxy for growth, so wait a minute, what's going on here? Well, typically, just looking, 
Typically when that happens, it's because they are buying stock. That's not happening here. And uh, let me just look historically here at the, the ROI. My guess is they have been coming down a bit. So, you know, the peak ROIs are in the upper 20s here. The now 16 still good, but not as good as it has been. Growth is still okay, but it's flattening. Debt to EBITDA is... Um, you know, 2.6, it's it's not too bad, but it, again, it's at the peak of all time. I'm sure they're buying up little brands to put through their distribution. That's how they get to be 45% market share. The profit margin here is, operating margin is a little off the peak, but it's 20%. That's very healthy. It speaks to their competitive advantage, which I guess just like Frito-Lay and companies like that, um, and even in my industry or anybody's, it's distribution. If they have the doors uh, and they have the trucks, then, um, you know, they can drive the story. And they're big enough that they probably own a fair amount of their distribution or, again, their brands are so powerful when you think about it, M&Ms and Reese's and, of course, Hershey itself. Um, there might be a little issue coming up here with, Halloween and COVID, um, but the beautiful thing about Halloween costumes, built-in masks, everyone's wearing masks, and I think they're going to have a big ad campaign around Halloween. So, what else can I tell you? I'm, I guess on this one I'm not doing a ton, but it's just a stable consumer product. The valuation, like so many things, is a little high, which is why I almost didn't even do it, but it's not so high that... Um, it can't be a good value from here or certainly a protector of capital. That's probably a better way to think of Hershey. So Hershey, HSY. Um, all right, how are we doing on time here? I got to get going, but I do have time for one more. Wow, we're getting late in the show. All right, let me do one more real quickly. Um, again, I'm going through the same list. I did pick one earlier that I wanted to talk about and uh, which one was it well it's public storage PSA uh, what do I like about it well they've got a decent return on capital 13 percent 12 12 and a half percent return on assets which is terrific debt to capital low 55 times interest earned debt to EBITDA one I like all that um, it's you know, again, not super cheap. 21 times EBITDA. That's even higher than the, you know, I was just saying for Hershey. Um, so it may not be for everyone. The screen is going to deliver things that already look good. So, you know, the dreg screen is a different week. So this one's in decent shape. And public storage, when you think about the trends that are going on, uh, maybe people moving out of cities, maybe people getting Winnebago's, what have you, all the patterns of where we're living and working are going to be shifted up. And you might have to put some stuff in storage. You know, if you move, you downsize, you get a Winnebago. I'm just thinking that... You know, everyone's basement having an opportunity to be in storage is not a trend that's going to be stopping anytime soon. Their EBITDA margin is 71%, so that can only mean that all they do is, you know, buy property and lease it. Their costs are not in, uh, you know, they're after the EBITDA. EBITDA is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. All their costs are interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So... 
see if I can find what their pre-tax um, margin is. That's going to be a little bit more um, meaningful than than this one here. So hold on. Let's pop this up. Yeah, well, wow, even pre-tax, 44%. So the fact is they don't have a lot of costs. And so something like this, return on capital, comes from the margin times the um, assets over capital, the ratio of that. And, um, and so this business has a giant advantage with such a high uh, margin. Um, valuation, PE 32, so... E over P around three. I already said enterprise value to EBITDA. The balance sheet here is um, apt to be loaded up with leases and such. Let's see here. You know, well, I mean, equity to assets is 72%. That's pretty good. These guys look like they're pretty well capitalized as well. And I'm doing as little work as possible here, but let me just give you a few ratios. Well, first the Altman Z-score, 7. It's very good. Um, that's a risk of bankruptcy measure. And, um, you know, sometimes these REITs are hard to exactly interpret the balance sheet, but that equity to assets number I gave you, 70%, that's pretty good. And um, what else do we have here? I mean, that's really about it. So there you have it. PSA, public storage. All right, let me take a very quick minute for a little segment people like called Walking Through National Economic Trends. I'm overstating it. I just like to go to FRED, the Federal Reserve of St. Louis, pull up a few recent releases, see what the hell's going on. I think this is a way to stay in touch with the economy. So we're completely out of time, but I want to mention a couple things. One, oil prices are in the mid-40s around there, 40. Um, and everyone's talking about how they're, you know, certainly well off the peaks back in 08, 09, uh, part of what drove that recession people forget about is the big rise in commodity prices to one, you know, this was 130. And then for a lot of years, two, you know, 2012 through 14, we were in that 100 range. And then it was the collapse in 14 and 15 that led to the predictions of the recession that didn't come. So now we're back around 40. Everyone thinks that's reasonable. But all I want to put out, point out is that prior to 2004, oil had never been above 40. And now all of a sudden, everybody's cool that it's at 40. And um, I think a lot of that is due to growing efficiency. You know, electricity as a percent of GDP and energy as a percentage of GDP are all down since that time, even though oil is the same price. Um, part of that is natural gas, a little bit coming in from some of these other things. But it's just interesting how things can, can flip up on you. Where 40 used to be, oh my God, it's $40 back in 19, you know, uh, well, even 2005, that would have been enormous. So there's a little something to talk about at a party. And then the other thing I'll just mention is industrial production. You know, this is sort of the thing we can keep our eye on to see how we're doing um, with the recovery. And I just want to point out that if you go here and click through 
Um, there's a lot of interesting information in here about every little industry, nook and cranny of the economy, and how it's doing relative to January or five years ago or ten years ago. It's, uh, again, for hobbyists, if you want to know what the economy is doing, go to this Industrial Production Index and then click through to this G17 industrial production and capacity utilization report. It's awesome. And in the spirit of education, um, you want to keep up, uh, up to date on what's going on. That's really a good place to do that. So um, there's my walking through national economic trends. Really abbreviated tonight. I apologize. So, but, you know, there's a rabbit hole in there if you want to go take a look at that. So that's all we have. That's our show for tonight. Hopefully, Ma will be back next week. We had, I think, three pretty good ideas this week. Uh, PSA, Western Union, and Hershey. So check that out. And then also a little bit of news, etc. See all our disclosures, disclaimers, etc. at www.thevalueguys.com. Check us out at Spotify and iTunes. And uh, thanks for listening in. So long, everybody.